Welcome to the Abbey Talk series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. It's been a crucial week once again in the life of the Abbey Theatre, and one thing that remains true is that everyone has an opinion on what the Abbey Theatre should be, could be, and ought to be. Sitting down with John Stapleton, Head of Stage Management and Health and Safety, a veteran of 38 years' service to the National Theatre, I'm struck by the lines and links of history and tradition that thread the theatre community together. John is a legend of the theatre industry. 38 years of looking after shows and cast and crew and staff earn you that title of respect. The fondness with which the Abbey Theatre regards John is evident. This podcast is as much a testimony to John as it is to the legacy of the theatre. John is a born raconteur, and his stories give an insight into the ways and workings of a theatre with all the drama on and off stage. It reminds us that we are all part of a continuum. John talks with me about his beginnings here at the Abbey back in 81, his significant first week, cutting his teeth as an ASM by night and a stage manager by day, chasing scenes, diffusing fireworks, and well before health and safety and animal welfare was a standard, directing donkeys on the peacock stage. You can listen to John's stories every day. It's all in the way he tells them. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome, John Stapleton, to the Abbey Talks podcast series. I feel as if I should probably strike the gong or something for this one, John. Um, (laughs) John, it was a crucial week in the life of a stage manager when you started out here at the Abbey. Will you tell us how it all began here for you? Um, Nowadays, you would probably say it was dramatic, but it was my first day and it was my first job, believe it or not. Um, I had... um, arrived over from London uh, literally that weekend prior to my starting on my first show which was uh, All in Favour Say No uh, by Bernard Farrell it was a show it was a revival I think it may have been done earlier on uh, that year or if not the year before but it was a revival the Abbey had just come back from its annual holidays that then were the days as they say when the Abbey um took the month of July or, or June, July, they took a month off and this was the first day back for them and they were presenting um, All in Favour Say No. As I said, it was a show that had been done before so I arrived as, a, as an ASM. Uh, I think that would have been on a, on a Tuesday morning and uh, as it was my first job and I had literally had finished college the previous Friday, got married on a Saturday Travelled over to Dublin on the Sunday on the I think what was called then the Greyhound bus, and uh, I had the Monday off because uh, that allowed us to get our, our get organised and uh, get on with our new married life and uh, and then I started work I think it was on the Tuesday, so I arrived in the Abbey full of trepidation and nervous to say the least and uh, but I didn't have time to actually to think or reflect. Because normally when a show starts rehearsal, eh, the, the, certainly the first week is it's sort of what I call it. It's a nice, easy uh, step into it. And it's only as the, as the weeks go by that, that the, 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 the pace, the tempo um, uh, speeds up. And I, and, and I always said it many years later, I recognise that moment. I call it it's the moment when the screw turns. Um, that it's no longer a sort of a rehearsal. It now suddenly everyone realised, 
bloody hell, we've got a, sh- a show here and it's going to be down on the stage now, short, you know, and we're out of the rehearsal room. So they it, usually that's uh, the last week or somewhere in the middle of the second last week where, where everyone knows a certain tension comes into er- everyone's uh, uh, voice and it, 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 it permeates the whole atmosphere of the room. So none of that there was was for me because the, 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 this was, as I say, it was a show that had already been there and they were already on the stage and I was uh, given a list by the stage director at the time, a gentleman called Bill Hay, who sadly passed away actually last year. I think he was 94. And Bill uh, was my uh, was my uh, my boss, and he says, "There you are, John." And he gave me a piece of paper, two sheets of paper, if I remember correctly. And I looked at it, and it was handwritten, and it was a list of props. And and I and, and I said, "Okay." And he says, "That's the basket over there, uh, 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 what we call a skip, a big, large wicker basket." And he'll see you'll find everything there. And I went over and I picked it, they were, or they opened it up and started picking stuff out. And I really was trying to decipher the handwriting and then trying to make sense where everything went. And then, of course, as soon as I had, uh, they started taking stuff out, as members of the cast were running, oh, well, we need that, John, we need this and we need that. And I was literally chasing the scene as, 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 as we went through it. And uh, I hadn't got time then to be nervous. I just wanted to get on with it and uh, I, I, I certainly uh, nowadays we we talk about doing an inductions or at the very least getting the tour of the building i didn't even get that i was just stage left in the wings and <laughs> there it was <laughs> mucking about with this big basket trying to keep up with the cast uh, where is this where is that but, but yeah but that was my um, first experience of, of, uh, of working in the, on the Abbey It does sound as if no amount of training is going to uh, make you ready for such a thing you mentioned that you did get uh, training over yeah, in the UK I, 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 I had gone to uh, I, I'd done two years at uh, a technical uh, course in, in, in a college which is still there and it was a well known college uh, uh, called Rose Bruford and uh, I did two years uh, technical uh, theatre work there which covered everything, you know, it, 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 uh, much the same as a lot, a lot of the, the, uh, the, uh, the colleges today. You worked in every department and uh, on your second year, you more or less indicated where you thought you might want to work. And I went for stage management. And did uh, the UK model um, translate when you came back home? Because you're handed two handwritten notes when you came home. Yeah, well, first of all, the, 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 the stage management model in, in the UK certainly wasn't the way it was over here. So everything that I would have been taught on, on, on that side of it was out the window. And you rightly say that all my two years of training suddenly on that first day went out the window. And I just had to get on with it and use common sense. The baptism of fire. Yeah. I suppose what sparked the interest in the first place? Did you did your family go to theatre? No, I, I, I absolutely no connections whatsoever with, with theatre. Um, uh, I think I may have been brought to a pantomime just once. Uh, no, the, the only theatre I ever went to was uh, we, we would have occasionally went to the pictures as a family would uh, never to the theatre but what uh, aroused say my interest in the theatre I was uh, in uh, a Claw Road Technical School 
I think it's nowadays it's called Sundry Road Technical School. It was a technical college out there, and uh, there was uh, and it's always down to one teacher who uh, the English teacher would have been uh, interested in theatre, and he invited or asked uh, some students would they like to go and see a play in the Abbey Theatre. I don't know even at that time did I know who or what the Abbey was. No, the only reference that I had in the Abbey was 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 one of those derogatory things, that uh, and it, it was probably very much a, a maybe a Dublin slang, like if when you were messing about with with uh, as a young lad, and an adult or an older member of the of the boys, the bigger boys, you know, if you were getting a bit uppity. He said, oh, hold on here a second. Do you think you're a bit of an Abbey actor? Oh, right. And that was a term of sort of um, being it's slightly derogatory. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're an Abbey actor? You know. Yeah. But years later, I thought, well, that only went to show you that even though for a lot of people who may not have even gone to the theatre, let alone the Abbey, the fact is that the Abbey had a phrase that people used meant that it had seeped into the consciousness and a certain amount had seeped into into, into, into the language. So it know. had a reputation. So it had a reputation. And that was probably the only reference I had. Who do you think you are? I think you're an Abbey actor. And so, so when you came in here, did that... Um uh, I suppose a derogatory term uh, makes sense to you when you came in here. <laughs> what was the atmosphere I know, I, like? I, well, I, I tell you, at the, at, at the time when I when I first came to the Abbey, as I said, with that that school teacher brought us to yep. a play, uh, and it, it was nineteen sixty nine, if I remember, and it was the uh, the Barstow Boy, Brendan Bean's Barstow Boy, and uh, I would have been fifteen at the time, and I was certainly bowled over. And that's when theatre, as a form of entertainment, or, 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 or I, I don't think I thought of it as a place I would like to work in, but it certainly rose my interest in the theatre, and I thought this was amazing. Uh, there I was, you know, watching The Barstool Boy, and I had heard of Brendan Bean, and uh, it's actually... Believe it or not, I think the book was still banned at the time, certainly, because I remember somebody, an older lad we hung around with, had a version of it probably in 68, 67, and it was actually banned at the time. And here was the Abbey now putting, it had to play on in 1967 or thereabouts. And I I was like, I was bowled over by that. I I was like, that certainly was the start of my interest in in theatre. So, yeah. So to answer your first question, uh, no, I had no family connection, but it was true. The uh, an English school teacher, that, um, um, yeah, but gave me that uh, interest. When when you did start here, you're maybe in your late twenties, are you? Um, uh, yeah. Who's the artistic director? Joe Dowling. He was on his second term at the time. Okay. And, and what was the atmosphere like? I was talking to Stephen Malloy here yesterday and he does describe it as, uh, you know, the heyday for him. But he did say that it was quite stuffy. He, uh, his first impression was that it was quite stuffy, but then he, he shook that. What was your first impression? Uh, well, once I, I, I got settled in, say, and I got to, to, to know the building and the staff, I actually, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and... Uh, uh, but when you're 
uh, an ASM, you're not privy to uh, to the the, the, the goings on, say on oh, at the managerial level or who does who's doing what or you know that you only pick up on these things uh, as uh, from the older actors, particularly. But I was very conscious of that a lot of the older actors that uh, I I had would have contact with were were people that had been involved in the Abbey going back to the to the fort and maybe in some cases even the late thirties. So what actors it, are you talking about here, John? These well, are uh, Abbey actors. Yeah, Abbey uh, from actors. The company. So we must remember back then that there was an Abbey company, and if I remember the the, the company at that stage reached somewhere in the in the early forties, forty one, forty two, uh, and uh, I think that was when it was at its height, and then slowly over the next say five six years the numbers started dwindling as people retired passed away but they certainly stopped taking on new members i i, I think the last member of the abbey the last person to be asked to join the abbey company i think might have been breedney nocton and she had because she was on the first show that i started on and she would have gone through uh onto acting through that traditional way of being an acting ASM. Did she start at the same time as you, or she was here? No, she was already. She, she, she had. I think she had been offered a, a position as a as a member member of the company. Probably in, in nineteen eighty, I started here in nineteen eighty one, July eighty one, thereabouts. But I think she would have been the last person uh, to be to be invited to be a member of the company. Yeah. And as an ASM, you're you're not in the rehearsal room as much, um, as say a stage manager would be. No, no, your job was uh, was was get out there and and, and get the get get the props, the furniture, or whatever, and uh, so. But uh, but uh, but uh, as the as the rehearsals progress and you got more into runs, then you had to actually start involving yourself in the run because the, this what was then the stage manager was known as the stage director. Uh, they, obviously, the, if it was a busy show, they couldn't run the whole thing of themselves, so the, you were needed in the, in the rehearsal room. So how many years say did it take for you to graduate from ASM to stage director to? When I when I came in first, I was given a, a two year contract as an ASM, and in a, in a sense that would have been served as your apprenticeship, uh, and then then I towards the end of, of my second year I started taking on uh, lunch times. Uh, of which it, we did quite a lot at that at, at that period, eighty three, eighty four, and eighty five, uh, and I, it and it was a great opportunity the lunch times because generally they had to be done on say the Peacock's night show set, so you had a certain bit of uh, rearranging to do. They were certainly on a shoestring. In, invariably, when I when I. Uh, they did. I had at one stage over a, a three-year period. I think I did about eight or nine or ten lunch times, and uh, and which was great because it was an it was an ASM at night time, and it was a stage manager for my lunch time. So it, it it gave you more responsibility. It was an acting up role, and it sort of cut your teeth and to take responsibility. You were in charge, and also the lunch times. I I thought were a great opportunity because. Depending on the on the play, obviously it was it was short, um, and uh, it it gave directors 
uh, young directors an opportunity again for them to cut their teeth and some cases it also gave a designer an opportunity to get, get their teeth so really the company that would be say they the, 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 who were putting on the lunchtime invariably were made up of seasoned well-experienced actors and novices like myself as a stage manager, director, and and design lighting designer as well, and so that's how you 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 would have learned and got on, but the advice and uh and the knowledge of the actors would very much come into play there. And were you starstruck by the actors that you were mixing with at this point? I mean, these Abbey actors. I mean, who would you who would you be referencing there? Well, some of the, the older actors I would have had, Philip O'Sullivan and Bill Foley, and Maureen Toll. Uh, I mean, these were well-established well and well-known household names then, and they would have had sort of contact with, 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 the, with again, with some of the historical names associated with the Abbey. And, it was a and did they have time to be sitting down and chatting, you know, uh, to you and, and, and the rest of... No, maybe well, the, well the, the Abbey, uh, I found the staff and the actors included that once you got to know people and, and when there was a moment to relax the tea breaks or before they, the show in the, in the, in the, in the settle, you, you just got chatting to people and you, and you began to know who they were. And, they, and, and, and actors are, are great people for, for, for telling stories and, and often they'd be talking to each other but you'd be there part of the conversation you were more or less hanging on their words and what they were saying but you would hear an awful lot and then you, you, as you got to know and got more confident you joined in on the conversation. But we were very aware that these people had went back uh, they like certainly would have worked under Ernest Blight and, uh, and some of the some of the uh, the people who were so and Lennox Robinson and these were people who were the founders part of the founding of the of the Abbey Theatre, and you sort of said like, here I am uh, in 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 the in the in the early eighties and I'm talking to people who who would have known people who were uh, involved in the Abbey and from 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 the very early days. I'm intrigued when you're in the rehearsal room and um, when you get the chance to be in the rehearsal room to be at a first reading, your instincts, I suppose some of the first readings I've been at have been so electric that sometimes when it transfers to the stage, you think, oh, it doesn't doesn't quite ha- have the magic of, of what I felt up in that rehearsal room. Um, and, and then it goes to the other way that you're sitting there going, I'm not really sure how this is ever going to work. Yeah, and yeah. then you know you're talking about i suppose what an actor can do to a script yeah. um, i'm sure you've had loads of moments like that when you got to sit in yeah i, I as as the years went by I, I began to appreciate a lot more of how that how the whole process unfolded and, and it worked and i i've always been astounded like on what would read as mundane let's say from a from a script and how an actor can infuse it with a, a totally different meaning or make something work that looked quite boring and mundane. <laughs> and, uh, always astonished me when a play, particularly a new play, would be coming on and we would obviously get the script in advance and people say, oh, what do you think? And he said, no, I think this could be something good there. Or you'd say, you know, you, you know, you give your honest opinion. I'm not too sure now. We'll see how it goes. And a lot of them would be, you'd be in that sort of category. I'm not too sure. We'll have to wait and see. 
and it's then you realize how the magic works because it's what the actor brings to it yeah and you would be astounded god i i never saw the line turning out that way you know, or the different angle they would bring to it but they often uh, actors would uh, it, it would make suggestions in in the rehearsal particularly with with new scripts and it was it was amazing how you know with their experience and their knowledge and what they would suggest could work for them and and for the scene you know can turn a script around I've seen that process been uh, been often amazed. You just you mentioned there how sometimes uh, the, the 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 sort of how something could be so electrifying in the first reading. I've often been and I've thought about this for a long time. Um, it's not so much the first reading. It's probably when you come to the say the final run in the rehearsal room. Uh, one of those ones and they'd usually be two or three and uh, you'd go in and sit down and you, I may be just an observer or I may be actually the stage manager on the show but I've often been completely bowled over in in that uh, rehearsal room run and really to, been literally gobsmacked and said this is amazing and then only to go down to the dress rehearsal and be disappointed and then you'd go to the maybe a preview and then you'd go to an opening and then it would come around again but i was always well why am i always disappointed when i when i get down to the, to the dress rehearsal and of course it, it it's always that relationship between actors will say the relationship between them and the audience and the dynamics of the auditorium and that's the strange thing about in the rehearsal room now the rehearsal room has got none of the of, of its it's four walls and make up you know dressing and so forth it very often has no relationship with what's going to be on the on the stage but because you're sitting there literally only in some instances only barely a half a meter from the actors or a certain scene is at a, at, a, at a table and you're only a meter away and this intense conversation is going on between two characters and it's only a meter that you're, you really are eavesdropping us what's going on here and I realised it was the intimacy that pure connection you, you can, can get because the actors now are off the book and they're, they're, and they're well on their way. Now actors will say, no, there's a lot of work to be still done to round off the whole thing. And, and we accept that. But the thing is, on those final runs in the rehearsal room, you are so intimately involved and connected with it that when you, and then suddenly when you sit at the back of the auditorium and now they're off down like say 30 meters away from you and, and that's what it is and it makes you realize that the relationship between an auditorium and the stage is actually crucial you, you really are just eavesdropping on, in on a conversation here you know john you've been 38 years here you've seen a lot of um artistic directors the style of each one I suppose, would you talk about maybe the style of management from flying one to the other? There's a, I'm sure there's an adjustment. 
with each artistic, artistic director. director coming in. Mm. Yeah, there is. I, 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 as I said, Joe Downing was uh, the first uh, artistic director that I worked under, and uh, I think it was Tomas McKenna came in after that. And like I obviously heard the the, the company talking about Tomas, and he had a big reputation, and uh, and and of course I, I I would have remembered he directed the first play I'd seen, The Horse of Boy, back in '69, but I I was already in awe and in fear of the man because he had a big reputation and people said, oh, he was very stern and he was, he would, he, he could be short with people and, and, and so forth. And then when he came in, I, you would want to, how am I going to manage this? But when I got to know Tomas, I found him an absolute gentleman. And yes, he was tough. And I could see now Tomas was at this stage, I think this was the second time Tomas had been in Tomas had been the an artistic director. I think he was still an artistic director before Joe Downing, uh, came and uh, but uh, Tomas had, had was getting old and perhaps he people said ah oh, Tomas he's 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 sort of quietened down but I was still in awe but he could still see that that you know he could be short with people but I found him an absolute gentleman to work with very friendly and he gave you as much attention to you as he did to to obviously much more important people than you know but it was a different style of it but was very very direct and you know you'd learn i i learned a lot of things actually from tomas i learned one was to be truthful yeah, he asked me once we were watching a, uh, I, I was watching a dress rehearsal or part of a tech i can't remember of a show on the peacock and he turned around to me and says what do you think of that john and i was amazed that the great tomas mcgana would ask me for for his opinion and i sort of uh, stumbled out some words of praise and i said oh, come on john be honest so it's a load of rubbish <laughs> which i was amazed and he was directing this <laughs> And then I had to be honest, well, yeah, I think it's, it's, it is a bit, you know, you know, it's not quite up to the mark. And he says, he says, John, remember, be honest. Well, that was the first thing. I know you have to be sensitive to people, but if, if you know, you shouldn't really, if you're asked for an opinion, you know, we'll give it honestly. You don't have to be brutal, but, but give an honest opinion. And, uh, what else did you learn from Tomas? Well, I actually found his uh, his management style was very interesting. I can uh, I can tell you an interesting uh, incident that happened at one Saturday morning, and usually the Saturday morning rehearsal were always tended to be a bit more relaxed, because uh, the building itself would have been it it, it wasn't fully open. Uh, um, uh, but we were uh, rehearsing uh, the hostage, and uh, Ray McNally was was in it, and um, Joe Lynch was in it, and I had already was familiar with with Ray, and again Ray McNally, as we all know, was a formidable actor, big reputation, a big director, and uh, Joe Lynch I hadn't met before. Uh, this was the first time I had worked with Joe Lynch, but I always remember 
when the cast list for the hostage went up on the on the board on the top corridor and uh, we were obviously rehearsing something else at the time but at the at the tea break a lot of the actors were looking at the list and they all laughed and there was whispers and then and they saw Joe Lynch and Ray McAnally and I suddenly got a hint of there could be fireworks here so anyway we came we were up and running with uh, the rehearsals for the hostage and now I was working as as I, I was actually a stage director on the, on, on, the, on the show and I was working with Tomas McKenna and uh, uh, on the Saturday morning rehearsal, we had Joe and Ray. And by the way, Tomas was clever. Uh, he he made sure that the only way he was going to be able to handle these two people, that he tried to make sure that they wouldn't have to interact as much as possible. And he literally plonked one on either side, downstage left and downstage right, and by and large, that was their spot. Uh, but they had a particular scene uh, this Saturday morning that we were, we were doing, and they, they both had a, a scene that they had to interact. And they were looking across, what they should have been looking across and, and uh, making eye contact with each other. But words were said, and I can't remember who said what first, but it suddenly developed into a, 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 a as you say, a, a row, and each was complaining about the other to Tomas. And we were in the rehearsal, and I, I was getting nervous, you know, and, uh, and, I, and I then and I did recall then about um, what the actors were saying a couple of months earlier when they first saw that the cast list up, and I said, "Oh, this moment has arrived now," and I'm getting nervous. And just out of the blue, and Tomas was in the in the in the in the in the, in the, the centre where we were sitting at the back of the rehearsal room, and there was a space behind, as you know, where it is where the 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 cast still to this day sit around uh, in the armchairs that was behind us. And Tomas turned to me and said, uh, "John, we'll have a production meeting." And I thought he meant, "John, I want you to organise a production meeting, say for next Monday or Tuesday." And I suddenly realised we're having the production meeting now. And he literally picked up, and our, Tomas had the, his own armchair. He always had an armchair but that was his. He claimed it was his chair. Stephen Malloy will tell you, in actual fact, it was not. It was, it was <laughs> one of those uh, old pieces of furniture that probably was there long before in the old Abbey, but Tomas always claimed this chair. He picked us his big armchair, and he literally turned it around to face the opposite way. And I realised we were going to have the production meeting now. And it was just Tomas, me, and I think the designer was actually sitting in. And uh, so we, we turned around and uh, and he says, now, John, uh, and we'll go through a couple of things on the set. How are we on such and such uh, props for such and such a scene? And... Uh, but I, I quickly realised what Tomas was saying because as Tomas was talking I sort of looked over my shoulder and the two actors who thought they had Tomas's attention now realised Tomas literally without buy or leave said nothing ignored them and the two of them had to sort of calm down and get off their horse and 
and Tomas just kept on with, the, with his so-called production meeting and that went on for about five or six minutes and then I think Tomas had obviously an ear to what was going on behind things had calmed down and they, they just gave up Ray and Joe and he said now John oh is that grand John I think we covered everything there he says we'll have a cup of tea now he never looked or referenced or said anything we got up and went out to the kitchen we had our cup of tea and our bun and he says John we'll start again and uh, yeah and uh, get the two lads back in again and we picked up where we left off and the whole thing was was resolved was there was resolved. conflict resolution there was no row and there was no arguing because Ray and Joe knew that Hamas wasn't going to entertain anything <laughs> I wouldn't have liked to have had, had that tackle. Um, you're a great man for the stories. And I wondered if I just prodded you with some pitches. You talked to me about dressing room three in the Peacock or just that general area in the Peacock. It's always get a little bit of a... Yeah, well, Jed, I, it, like, dressing room three was reputed to be, to be uh, um, haunted. And it was John O'Hara who, who said it to me. And Joan would always claim that she had psychic, maybe not powers, but certainly psychic. She was tuned in that tuned way. Tuned in, in, into these things. And she, she, yeah, she maintained. And she was a good friend to Angela Newman, who again was a famous Abbey actress. Like Joan, obviously, uh, when she arrived, uh, was the young actress at the time, and Angela Newman was 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 the with a leading lady of of the Abbey. But herself and uh, and and and, uh, and Angela and Joan got on very well, and I sort of imagine Angela had took had taken Joan under her wing, so she had a very close personal relationship with her. They would have shared dressing rooms, and then uh, Angela passed away. And she maintained that she often seen and fed Angela Newman in that dressing room. And it was, I often thought, I thought nothing of it, well, that's, that's okay. But without it, there was a few incidents that happened. And it's not so much a, a ghost story, but it was always number three that it happened in. Like I was working on a show. I remember giving a standby call to Marnie Grania. And I knew Maura was going to make her entrance actually close to where, to where I was calling the show from. And uh, I looked around, there was no Maura. And I thought, okay. And uh, I gave the call again. And still no sign of Maura. And then I started getting worried because you're looking ahead and you can see the entrance. And uh, then the, the stage manager at the time, a gentleman called John Kells, came rushing out. He says, John, 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 Maura's locked in the toilet. And I, I, I was trying to now to have a conversation with John Kells in between giving the cues for the show, and he says, well, "What do you what do you mean she can't get her out of the toilet? She's in the toilet and she knows she, her she's to be on stage, but she can't get out. She the door will not open, and she was in dressing room number three, and I now uh, began to panic and I and I says John I says go back down there and tell her to stand up on the toilet." And I don't care what you do, just kick that door in and tell her to go up here, double quick. And that's exactly what John Kells had to do, was, was literally kick the, the, uh, the toilet door down. And then and I was watching the queue coming up and I was waiting and I could more and took the shortcut through the scene dock out onto the stage and 
panicked and made her entrance. And uh, so there was there was there was over the years another people to say they were, if anything was going wrong or something it was always happened in number three and I thought was, well, maybe there's something in what Jonah Harrow was was saying. Yeah, there's something in the water there. Yeah, um, yeah. But the site of the actual peacock as well is. Um, well, this, uh, yeah, the peacock itself is is quite close to where, uh, on the original site, uh, there was a morgue. The, the city, the Dublin city morgue was there. Uh, uh, nowadays, it's down there at, uh, adjacent to Store Street Guard Station. But at the time, in, at the turn of the previous century, 1900-something, whatever, you had the Mechanics Theatre, which is the precursor of the Abbey Theatre, and then... Uh, and on the corner of the laneway, I think there, uh, there was the 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 um, the, the city mall. So uh, uh, yeah, so so some people said you you could you could get the you could get that vibe there, you know. Onto uh, onto a happier story, but it it does involve um, entrances and exits into the uh, peacock. Will you tell me a little bit about the tale of the donkey at the tinker's wedding? Uh, again, that was uh, a lunchtime that I was uh, given to work on, and uh, I, th- I think it was 84 or 85. The, the show that was on was uh, Stone Mad, I think. Stone Mad was, and Eamon Kelly was, it was a one-man show, and it was Eamon's show, it was Eamon's set. And so therefore the lunchtime had to take place on, 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 the, on this set. And it was also in the round in the Peacock. So we were doing the Tinker's Wedding and uh, the production manager for the Abbey Theatre, would I give the name? Two. Yeah, Brian Collins. Uh, obviously retired, but Brian Collins was, was the production manager, but he was also the designer. Which was for some strange reason, I don't know. It, it wasn't a, a an up and coming designer. Uh, uh, Brian Collins decided he was going to design this, so I thought that would make it easy for me. Yeah, you know, having the production manager as the set designer, and uh, and Paul Moore was the director. As I said, he was he uh, was learning his cutting his teeth at being a. At the director but we were coming to the uh, up to the dress rehearsal and the play does mention a, a, a donkey and cart and we had the cart and they decided wouldn't it be great if they could get a donkey in and I thought well I'm saying nothing because anyone that knows the peacock like are two floors below uh, ground level and uh, so I said nothing and then I realised at the tea break there were still going on about this donkey and I said you can't be serious how do we get the donkey done oh, it can't be done and then they said well look we'll try it we'll get the donkey in for the for the dress rehearsal for the photo call and the dress and I realised at the end of the day that the Paul and the, and the rest of the company were serious about this donkey. So I went up to the designer, stroke our production manager. And then days, the production manager was the production manager for the whole theatre, which would be the equivalent of the technical director there. 
So that was the so he was the guy in charge. And I thought, well, I walked in. And I said, Brian, they're looking for a donkey down there, and they want to bring one in t- tomorrow. And I thought he would just shoot at them. Why is this John fire away? And I couldn't believe it. Paul Moore, the director, obviously uh, acquiesced to all of this, may have even probably suggested it, uh, because he lived out in Scary's Bad Brigaway, and uh, his neighbours were farmers, and they had a donkey. So the day came, it was, uh, I think it was about 12 o'clock, on a, I think it was June, certainly there was a scorch. It was a beautiful, a very, very hot day. And I was panicking. And I know Stephen was, was with me. And I know one of the stage technicians, uh, Willie Urell, was there. And we were discussing how we're going to get this donkey down. So anyway, that, and I thought, well, we can't bring him through the front because... The, the Peacock Cafe was open, so I don't think they would appreciate seeing a donkey walking down the steps. Although, mind you, it would have been easier. The do- uh, Paul Moore arrives with his neighbour, tractor and trailer, not tractor, sorry, a, a trailer and a, a, a car. So the, here we are with a donkey. I had taught and I managed to get some planks. And I says, well, you know, I, I had no experience with with donkeys in a field, let alone getting the donkey to walk down steps. And we took the donkey out. My idea was that we'd we'd get him to walk down the plank. And I had planks just long enough for the first rung. And we'd get him onto the first landing, take the planks, move move it down to the next rung, and then down there. And uh, at this point, I, I hasten to add that health and safety back in 84 was something you would have to look up in a dictionary. Certainly none of us knew nothing about health and safety. Uh, and uh, and certainly if it was requested today, it would never even get to the to the request stage. It would be just shot down. It just would not happen. But anyway, this is 84. So anyway, we, 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 we now have uh, this donkey in the laneway who was now pers and sweating and you could see the animal was nervous and I said to Paul I said look the donkey's look, look at it you can see it's nervous I said but that's don't worry about that this is his first time in the city and I thought well that's great help <laughs> this donkey had never been outside its own field in Bad Brigham <laughs> now suddenly it was in a laneway in, the, in, the, in a heat wave and so we all had the door open and the two, and the pl- two planks on the ready. And we were trying to get it in the door. Like the donkey wasn't on for it. We were pushing and shoving and trying to get this donkey in. And I always remember two winos who were sitting up in the laneway and they were sitting there and they were looking over at us. You could see, you know, that they were totally bemused by this. Eventually, because we weren't getting this donkey, oh, this is, we'll give you a hand. So now I had to deal with two winos and a donkey, and I tried to convince them, no, it's okay, go back and sit where you were. And So anyway, got the donkey onto the plank and pushed it, and the donkey literally just slid down. 
and knocked his noggin off the wall. So I thought about that and I said, well, that's not going to work because he got three landings and the very time he's going to knock his noggin off the wall, I said, that's not going to do him or us because something will give here. So I decided I'd now take, I'd take the planks away and try and walk the donkey down. So we, so eventually we got it down the next rung and we turned and got onto that landing. So we're now on the last rung and I uh, had said, and I think at this stage, really your relative run away because it was, you know, the whole situation got bizarre. And uh, I, I remember saying, now at the bottom of the last rung, the door that leads into into the corridor, uh, which is our green room on the left hand side, is an open space, as you know. The donkey had to, to turn a sharp left and another sharp left to go through two more doors, which would bring it on the stage. But I said, have the doors open. But we made the mistake that we didn't have the door at the far end of the of the corridor, which led to the to the to the dressing rooms. So when we eventually got the donkey down the last flight and into the into the green room corridor, it was headed straight for the open space, which was the long corridor. They just trotted off down there. So now the donkey was down at number three dressing room, number three dressing room again, and he'd plonked himself just there and wouldn't move because there's another door at the end of that corridor. And uh, so the donkey now is facing the wrong way around. There's no room to turn it. So there's a row now between myself and somebody. I, I think this is the point where really Aurel ran off. Because <laughs> I said to really, you go around the donkey and push it from the front and I'll go to the back. And really insisted, I'm not getting anywhere near that donkey. Lash out at me, which is probably fair enough, the donkey at this stage. Um, so I think Willie disappeared. I don't know what happened, but we managed to back the donkey up the corridor, back up to, to the to, to, to where the green room is, and we got it to turn it around and then pointed the right way and eventually into the, into, into the wings of the peacock. And of course, then you had to negotiate three more steps to get into what would be the auditorium side of the of the peacock stage remember it's in the round so you had to go up the three steps get onto a landing and then go down a series of steps which mirrored the far side uh, uh, and then eventually onto the set and the cast at this stage had arrived and we had we were having a and fergus bork was doing the photography and fergus tossed this was absolutely hilarious and the donkey was set up with the car took the photographs and then we said okay well now we took the photograph we're going to do the dress rehearsal and then the donkey let off one haymaker and in the peacock you're two uh, stories below you know and in the sub sub basement and in hot sweltering heat and the donkey has done a haymaker and the smell coming off that was unbelievable and of course then the row started whose job it was to clean it up anyway we cleaned up after John you got the donkey in but how do you get the donkey out? Well, we had to we had we had to reverse the whole process the 
hold me back up, walk the donkey up. But at this stage, I'd given up on the planks. So if I had to certainly, if I uh, thought the plank was a bad idea to begin, I certainly didn't even entertain it. Oh God, whatever. We got the donkey up and took it away. And I said to everyone, that donkey's coming, not coming back tomorrow. It shouldn't have happened. But after the dress, I said, that well, donkey, that'll never happen again. That's it. And Fergus Bourke, many, many years uh, later, God rest him, told me, and he said that he dined out on that story for years afterwards. And people wouldn't believe him. And he says, well, if you ever in, the, in town, in Dublin town, and you want to verify, go to either John Stephen or Stephen Malloy, and they'll verify. I've yet to see a photograph of it. I've never come across it. I, mean, was it, I don't know if there are photographs. Well, probably in Fergus Burke's uh, archive. <laughs> John, we have a tradition here of asking um, people as they exit stage left what their top three productions were. What, what were, Could you put it down to three productions that were your favourite? I'm always, I'd be hesitant to say what would be your, your favourite because a lot of shows, there'd be a lot of shows out there where, 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 where shows you, you, you'd particularly like. Uh, um, but I, if I was to try and name three, um, I, certainly the Julie concert, yeah, would be, uh, would be one. Ironic, uh, uh, there's one show uh, uh, that uh, was a co-production that we did, and it was it was under Ben Barnes's tenure, but we did the play by the Western World, which uh, would, and we did a co-production with the uh, Blue Raincoat. Now I think this was my fourth time to work in the play, fourth or fifth time to do the play by, so uh, so you might say, oh, you, well, I was getting a bit bored with working the way. Uh, on that on, on the Playboy <laughs> and uh, but this was an incredible production of the Playboy because again we did it in the round in the Peacock and if, when you do a show in the round in the Peacock everything is minimalist there's virtually no set you might, there is no set uh, and, and I always loved the, the, the Peacock in the round because it really it, 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 it really uh, pushes everyone to the pillar of the collar. You have to be creative. And it's really down to, to, to the acting and the word. Because there, there's, there, as I said, there's, there's no set. And how most people were, are familiar with the Playboy, and it, if there's ever a show or a play that requires a set is the Playboy, we all know there's a bar, there's a fireplace, there's the window and the door. Like their elements that all play a crucial part in the dialogue, so people would be astounded. Well, how can you do the playboy with no set? But we did, and it was that was an amazing production. And the last choice. Um, the, the last one, one was a play. Was again was a very simple show. It was uh, Eugene O'Brien's uh, play. Uh, Eden. Sure. Hmm? Eden. Eden. Again, that was, I thought that was a, a fantastic uh, show. Again, not only was the dialogue incredible, it's a two-hander, and the set is so simple. And we took it on tour, and uh, uh, we had a screen, a back screen, I, and uh, and I think this was only to dress it up. It, it was because I said jokingly that on, on tour, if the worst came to the worst, and for some reason the small truck we had carrying our set. 
got lost or broke down or whatever. Uh, I remember saying to Catherine Walsh and uh, and uh, Don Witchley. Don Witchley, I was saying we we would still do the show. I said we could put the lights up and I'd give both of you two chairs, and you would do it. It was that type of a show. If it came to that and the set and the truck didn't turn up, I would still do the show that night. And I would be confident. I, I would just tell the audience what would happen, but I still, you still had your two problems. It was, it was a fantastic piece of uh, writing and a fantastic uh, production, for, uh, particularly from the two cast. John, you have seen a lot of changes over the years, um, artistically and I suppose anecdotally as well. Um, would there be anything that you would kind of recommend that we would hold on to at the Abbey? Do you know, a tradition or, or just a way of how we work? Well, I think you, you said the word there, tradition. You have to be mindful of the tradition. Being mindful of your tradition doesn't mean you, you replicate the past. You don't do that. But you are mindful of, of the tradition of the Abbey Theatre. And, and, and whoever comes in here must be always aware of that. It's, it's just not any any old building it's it's what the abbey represent what it means and you take all that tradition and you and this is your duty your duty bound to bring that forward to the next generation and make it relevant john you're 38 years here are you of the mindset are you ready to go has it yeah i i am I've enjoyed the years here. The Abbey has been very good to me. You know, I've made lots of friends. It provided me with a livelihood. And uh, what more can I, can I ask for? But I have great memories of, 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 of being here and I'm very proud to say that I worked uh, in the Abbey. And even on my day one, what I, when I did, I, I couldn't believe that I was working in the Abbey. It was the first job I applied for. The, there was actually, by the way, the job that wasn't even advertised. I just put my CV in. Uh, as I said, I left college and I was getting my CVs ready. And I says, well, I'm going to start off with every theatre that began with A. I worked my way down to B, C, D, and until I had sent a letter off everywhere. And I sent, obviously, the first one, A, Abby. And I got a letter back inviting me back for an interview. And that's how I started. A bit of luck, and I think we've been very yeah. lucky to have you, John. I've felt lucky and privileged. It's, I've, I've really enjoyed my, my years here. But I, I am ready. It's time to go. It's, it's, uh, it's time for the next generation of people, you know. I've, I've done my bit and put in my hours, as they say. <laughs> You've done your service. Well, John, it's, it's been an absolute delight working alongside you all these years. It's, it's always been so reassuring to have you here. Whenever I knocked on the stage management hut door, you always met me a newbie with a sense of humour and a sense of um, practicality about approaching whatever bit of dramatic uh, tension I was bringing to your door. Um, and I can't say I ever left your company without smiling. Thank you. And the place won't be the same without you, John. Yeah.